From the studios of EWTN, this is Open Line. Today's Open Line is recorded, so no calls, please. If you'd like to send us an email for a future show, the address is openline at EWTN.com. He is risen, alleluia. He is risen indeed, alleluia. Welcome to a Easter octave edition of EWTN's Open Line Tuesday with Father Wade Menezes. We won't be taking your phone calls today. It's a very special mailbag edition of EWTN's Open Line Tuesday. I'm Jack Williams, Michael McCall producing the program. If you'd like to be part of a future EWTN Open Line Tuesday mailbag program, simply send an email to openline at EWTN.com. That's openline, all one word, at EWTN.com. And put something in there like Father Wade or Tuesday, and we'll get it into the appropriate folder. And our host, as he is every Tuesday, Father Wade, happy Easter. Happy Easter, Jack, to you and the team there. A, a, a beautiful, beautiful Easter week, what we call the Easter Octave from Easter Sunday proper, leading up to the second Sunday of Easter, also known officially as Divine Mercy Sunday. And that's the topic of today's springboard. That's exactly right. I want to talk about our Lord's promises attached to the Divine Mercy devotion and to the praying of the Chaplet of Divine Mercy as he revealed himself to St. Faustina Kowalska of the Most Blessed Sacrament, her official name in religion, and uh, everything that he said to her about those who pray the Chaplet of Divine Mercy faithfully and regularly. Now, these are the 14 that I have culled from reading the diary myself, and I've put them in a list. In fact, I will even give the diary number. Uh, but if there's any more out there that, that anybody discovers, please uh, send me uh, at, to fathersofmercy.com uh, at the Contact Us link there at, at our main community website, and let me know which other ones you found, and I will gladly add to this list. But, uh, you know, it's a beautiful devotion, this divine mercy that tells us about the, the wonderful reality of God's greatest attribute, His mercy. I like to say that mercy is who God is. It's love's second name. huh? God is more interested in our future than in our past. He's more interested in the kind of person we can yet become than in the kind of person we used to be. While indeed taking our sins seriously, no doubt, whether mortal or venial, God never, ever, ever takes those sins as the last word. Why? Because he knows he's made us in his image and likeness. He knows he calls us constantly to a life of his sanctifying grace. And he knows he is our God who is bigger than any sin we might ever commit, even the most hideous and wicked mortal sin. That's how great and awesome the mercy of God is. What many of the church fathers writing in the first eight centuries of the church called God's greatest attributes. So here they are, the, the, the promises our Lord made to St. Faustina to those who pray the Divine Mercy Chaplet and remain faithful to it on a regular basis. Number one, I promise that the soul that will venerate this image of Divine Mercy will not perish. I also promise victory over its enemies already here on earth and especially at the hour of their death. I myself will defend it as my own glory. That's diary number 48. Number two, the souls that pray this chaplet will be embraced by my mercy during their lifetime and especially at the hour of their death. Diary paragraph number 754. 754. Number three, when hardened sinners say the chaplet, I will fill their souls with peace and the hour of their death will be a happy one. That's from diary number 1541. 
Number four, Jack, is when they say this chaplet in the presence of the dying, I will stand between my father and the dying person, not as a just judge, but as a merciful savior. That's from diary paragraph number 1541 as well. Number five, whoever will recite this chaplet of divine mercy will receive great mercy at the hour of their own death. Diary number 687. Number six, priests will recommend this chaplet of divine mercy to sinners as their last hope of salvation. Even if there were a sinner most hardened, if he were to recite this chaplet only once, he would receive grace from my infinite mercy. I desire to grant unimaginable graces to those souls who trust in my mercy. Diary number 687 as well. Number seven, to priests who proclaim and extol my mercy, I will give wondrous power. I will anoint their words and touch the hearts of those to whom they will speak. Diary number 1521. Number eight, the prayer most pleasing to me is prayer for the conversion of sinners. Know, my daughter, he tells St. Faustina, that this prayer is always heard and answered, meaning the prayer of the chaplet of divine mercy. That's diary paragraph number 1397. Number nine, he says this, Jack, at three o'clock, implore my mercy, especially for sinners. And if only for a brief moment, immerse yourself in my passion, particularly in my abandonment at the moment of agony. I will refuse nothing to the soul that makes a request of me in virtue of my passion. That's diary number 1320, and also it is intimated strongly in diary number 1572. Number 10, the 10th promise is souls who spread the honor of my mercy at the hour of their death. I will not be a judge for them, but the merciful Savior. Diary number 1075. Number 11, the two rays of the divine mercy image denote blood and water. These two rays issued from the very depths of my tender mercy when my agonized heart was opened by a lance on the cross. These rays shield souls from the wrath of my Father. I desire that the first Sunday after Easter be the feast of mercy. Whoever approaches the fount of life on this day will be granted complete remission of sins and punishment. Mankind will not have peace until it turns with trust to my mercy. Diary number 299 and also number 300. These are paragraph numbers, of course, in St. Faustina's diary titled Divine Mercy in My Soul. Number 12, I desire that the Feast of Mercy be solemnly celebrated on the first Sunday after Easter. The soul that will go to confession and receive Holy Communion in a state of grace on this day shall obtain complete forgiveness of sins and punishment. Paragraph number 699 of the diary. Number 13, through this chaplet of divine mercy, you will obtain everything if what you ask for is compatible with my will. That is paragraph number 1731 of the diary. And number 14, Jack, the 14th promise attached to the divine mercy devotion and to the praying of the chaplet of divine mercy is revealed by our Lord himself to St. Faustina Kowalska of the Most Blessed Sacrament. Number 14, my mercy is greater than your sins and those of the entire world.
How beautiful is that? Diary number 1485. My mercy is greater than your sins and those of the entire world. So I wanted this to be our springboard topic today, Jack, as we approach Divine Mercy Sunday, this coming Sunday, the Sunday after Easter, also known as the second Sunday of Easter, which this year, April of 2023, is the 16th of April. And uh, if you're not familiar with the Divine Mercy Chaplet, you pray it with a regular rosary. It has five uh, decades on it, prayed with it, five decades. That's why we use a regular rosary. It goes much quicker than a five-decade rosary. It only takes about six and a half to seven minutes to pray, where the five-decade rosary takes about 17 or 18 minutes to pray. It's a beautiful, beautiful prayer. You can find it easily enough online. There's many, many devotional booklets that you can find in the vestibules at most Catholic parishes on the Divine Mercy Chaplet and how to pray the Divine Mercy Chaplet. And the brochure or pamphlet will also tell you more about the Divine Mercy devotion in general. So this is just a a beautiful, beautiful devotion that Pope St. John Paul II, now St. John Paul II, officially declared uh, in the early 2000s, um, Divine Mercy Sunday, now officially uh, called such, can be called such, but it still retains the title, the second Sunday of Easter. It's the octave day that closes the octave, that is the eighth day, of the Easter celebration. You know, we Catholics are big on octaves, right? The two big octaves are the Christmas octave, December 25th, and the eighth day celebration there is January 1st, New Year's Day, secondly speaking, but also the great solemnity of Mary, Mother of God. And the second big Easter octave that we Catholic Christians celebrate is the Easter octave from Easter Sunday itself, which is a floating feast uh, because it's dependent upon the lunar calendar. Uh, It's a floating feast, but eight days after that, Also Sunday is always the second Sunday of Easter, always also Divine Mercy Sunday. You can receive these 14 promises by going to fathersofmercy.com. At the homepage at fathersofmercy.com, the first page to pop up there uh, on your computer in the upper right-hand corner, click on the magnifying glass icon. Immediately a search bar shows up in the middle of the homepage. And on that search bar, simply type 14 Divine Mercy Promises, 14 Divine Mercy Promises, and uh, this sheet comes up as a PDF file ready to print out uh, or print off on your home printer. Uh, And also uh, there as well uh, are the the eight times that our Lord mentions his second coming to St. Faustina, and one time that our Blessed Mother mentions her son's second coming. So a total of nine times that our Lord's second coming is mentioned to St. Faustina. You can print that off as well. Again, it's a very special mailbag edition of EWTN's Open Line Tuesday, so we won't be taking your phone calls today. If you'd like to be part of a future mailbag program, send us an email, openline at EWTN.com. It's Open Line Tuesday with Father Wade Menezes. This is Open Line on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. Today's Open Line is recorded, so no calls, please. If you'd like to send us an email for a future show, the address is openline at EWTN.com. You know, you can join a deeper conversation about the most consequential issues facing Catholics today on EWTN News In-Depth with Monse Alvarado. And you can get EWTN News In-Depth delivered to your email inbox with details on each week's show. Simply go to EWTN.com slash in-depth and sign up today. 
Again, a special mailbag edition of EWTN's Open Line Tuesday, so we're not taking your phone calls today. Uh, Gary writes in and he says, I have an anxiety and panic disorder and was not able to go to Mass on Easter Sunday because of the large crowd and people this Mass attracts. Am I, did I commit a mortal sin by not going to Easter Mass? Well, you know, for medical conditions that are valid, uh, we can fulfill the Sunday obligation by doing our best to read the Scripture readings of that day, uh, by attempting, if we can, to have the priest or a deacon or an extraordinary minister of Holy Communion bring us Holy Communion on that day. There's different steps we can take when it's valid that we are unable because of a medical condition, which would include uh, a psychological medical condition, uh, to not be able to attend Mass in person, okay? Uh, That said, we want to do our best to try to remedy that health situation. Um, and, and whether it's, it's through the proper medical means, uh, maybe some close friends and family that you can be with, if that will help alleviate some of the anxiety, and rather than going to Mass by yourself, let's say, is what I'm trying to point out here. Going with loved ones who could be at your side. Um, I would also want the person to ask themselves, have you honestly tried to exhaust every remedy to be able to go to Mass in person? then if that has been sought out with a sincere conscience, then yes, you don't go, but you try to fulfill the other requirements uh, if you can. For example, watching online. Since, since the COVID pandemic, there are still parishes that are still offering the, the Mass being celebrated online. And even before the pandemic, we had Masses celebrated for the sincere homebound, uh, like the EWTN Daily Televised Mass. Um, you could watch it that way. You could still have try to have Holy Communion brought to you. You could still try to go to communion to, to, before your Easter... Uh, excuse me, try to go to confession before your Easter communion by trying to set up the priest to come to your home to hear your confession if you feel the need to go. So there's different steps we can go through to uh, alleviate our conscience in this regard. But like for any medical condition, if you truly sincerely cannot go, uh, you are excused from going. But we still want to try to be able to fulfill the requirements uh, that, that are still set before us in this modern day and time, like watching a, a, a live stream mass uh, or, or the daily mass, even if it may not be live when the second airing shows, like when the the 12 noon central time airs or the the 11 a.m. airs uh, on EWTN uh, from that 7 o'clock central time live mass, uh, you're still able to watch that daily mass. Uh, and that those are things that we want to try to do and fulfill. Great question. Thank you so much. Again, it's a very special mailbag edition of EWTN's Open Line Tuesday. If you'd like to be part of a future show, send us an email, openline at EWTN.com. Or you can leave us a message and leave your question on our listener comment line. To do that, all you need to do is call our regular number, 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986 after 4 p.m. Eastern Time. And you can leave your question for Father Wade on our listener comment line. Let's take a listen to one of those calls now. Hello, my name is Francisco. You asked for a question, and as as far as adoration, and I do understand we do not adore saints, only God. But during the liturgy, I believe it's Holy Thursday or Good Friday, we sing, we adore the cross, the wood of the cross. We adore the wood of the cross. That has always caused a question mark in my mind. 
would appreciate some kind of answer. Thank you very much. Yeah, because it's the tool on which our Lord died, we do give adoration to the cross on Good Friday. And we show that with the reverence of the option to kiss or at least touch the crucifix that's carried in procession. Uh, and it's because it's the instrument on which our God died in his second divine personage. Uh, that word of adoration is used properly, not so much in conformity to the to, to the uh, artifact itself of the cross, but the fact that the God-man died on it. That's why we say the adoration of the cross. Um, it's with our Lord and Savior and God, Jesus Christ, on it that we adore it, not without him on it. And that shows the distinction between um, the artifact itself, just as an instrument of death, versus with the God-man on it. So we adore it only when he's on it. So we, we give the procession for in, the, in the official rubrics of the Passion of Our Lord in the Good Friday service. Um, it is a crucifix and not simply a cross without the corpus on it. It's, it's with the image of Christ crucified on it, and it's because of that, per se, that we say we give the cross adoration at the Passion service on Good Friday. Great question, and, and a great question that offers, that, that beckons the distinction in that regard. Very good. Thank you so much. Uh, Nathan in Essex in the UK writes in, Hi, Father Wade. A few weeks back, you spoke about the importance of saying amen out loud after receiving Jesus. I have just come back to the church after being away for three years. The parish has a new priest, and before communion, he announced that we are not to say amen when receiving the Eucharist, only silently in our hearts. I'm perplexed. There are no COVID restrictions in the UK, and I thought responding amen was the public pronouncement of our belief, as you have said. The rest of the Mass is in the ordinary form. It just doesn't feel right. Is it wrong, or should I tell the priest? Yeah, it's interesting that, that he he says in his question, Jack, that, that he implies he knows the difference between the ordinary form and the extraordinary form, because in the extraordinary form, the traditional Latin Mass, the, the priest provides the statement of faith for the recipient uh, as he's distributing Holy Communion to the individual recipient, and indeed the recipient says nothing. But in the ordinary form of the Mass, it is the Reformed Roman Rite of the Second Vatican Council, the recipient gives their act of faith by simply saying, Amen. And so this uh, writer-in makes that clear that he knows this distinction. He's saying that it is the ordinary form of the Mass, the Reformed Roman Rite of the Second Vatican Council, and that's why it's, it's stumping him why the priest would say, don't say amen. I would say that you should be stumped by that, because what that priest is requesting of the people is wrong. Uh, the people's amen at the ordinary form of the Mass is their statement of faith. Uh, amen, in Hebrew, so be it. Um, or as you say, uh, when the distributor of Holy Communion, whether a priest, a deacon, a bishop, or a properly deputed extraordinary minister of Holy Communion, says to the recipient, the body of Christ, the recipient responds in the affirmative with an audible, out loud, amen. Uh, and so yes, I would be stumped too by that if it's the ordinary form, why the priest requested that of the recipients receiving Holy Communion, I would say that priest is out of line, because it's clear in the rubrics that we are to say amen, and not only say amen, but it needs to be heard by the one giving you communion. Sometimes people ask me, what do you think is the, is the biggest liturgical abuse, Father Wade, 
that you see at Mass, meaning the ordinary form. And I answer, well, it's the inaudible amen or the non-audible amen. People just either don't simply say amen or they simply just move their lips and they don't make any volume with their amen. No, your amen not only needs to be said, it needs to be said with volume. Not super loud, but it needs to be loud enough to where the one giving you the body of Christ hears you give that affirmation of faith. Yeah, affirmation of faith and act of faith, etc. That's what the amen means. So yeah, I, I would say I'm stumped too, especially if it's the ordinary form of the Mass, why the priest requests out of the people. Even COVID has been scratched off this by the way you phrase your question. So I, I have no idea, and sometimes I wonder why my brother priests uh, do such silly things that are rather a serious infraction against the rubrics of the holy sacrifice of the Mass or with the administration of any of the sacraments, really, not following the rubrics. So uh, I would say that I'm dumbfounded by it, and that, uh, you know, you, you can approach him privately and charitably, two of the, two of the guideposts of, of seeking fraternal correction, uh, go to him privately and charitably and say, Father, you know, several weeks back you, you asked that of us to not say the amen out loud, and I'm, I want to be a better Catholic, I want to live my faith more, I want to uh, strive to understand my faith more. Why did you say that? Because it's my understanding that in the ordinary form of the Mass, our amen is an act of faith, and it's said audibly out loud uh, to, the, to the one giving us Holy Communion. It doubles as an act of faith, an affirmation of our faith. It's, it's Hebrew for uh, so be it, or as you say. Uh, and I'm just wondering why you said that, Father, because it, frankly it didn't make sense, but I want to inform my intellect and understand your request better. And, and ask him. Let, let him provide his defense. And if it's, if it's an invalid defense, then I would write a, a charitable letter to him uh, after the fact. Uh, and if there's still no uh, betterment from that, then I would write a charitable, simple letter to his bishop, letting him know that he's doing wrong in that regard. There, you know, grace comes through the chain of command. Uh, and also the three hallmarks of fraternal correction from St. Thomas Aquinas is that it be done privately, charitably, and rarely if the person's an adult, which in this case, the, the priest pastor who said this is an adult. So we do it privately so as not uh, to embarrass him in front of other people. We do it charitably because charity is the queen of the virtues. And then we do it rarely because they're an adult. We shouldn't have to approach them about this infraction every single time we see the person. Uh, so privately, charitably, and rarely. And then at some point, you simply just have to write the bishop and say, you know, this is going on and it shouldn't be going on. But even with the bishop, you want to be charitable to him about the pastor that you're writing about, uh, because such things are just wrong. They're, they're just wrong, and they lead the people in confusion, liturgical confusion, and, and it's a travesty. So great question, and I admire you for knowing the truth and wanting uh, to say your amen out loud. Good for you. You know, Father Wade, I wonder, and this is just, you know, obviously pure speculation since we can't talk to the uh, emailer and make any uh, inquiries any sure. deeper than what the email says, but, you know, I wonder if this priest uh, is perhaps in a parish that only offers a Novus Ordo Mass, and perhaps he is uh, finds some beauty or some, some some devotion to the traditional Latin Mass, and, you know, I, I, I sort of wonder if maybe this is kind of his way of, of trying to incorporate some element of that into his Novus Ordo Mass. If it is, and like he says, we can only, we can only have conjecture about that, but, but if it is, if you're right, it's not the place for it, because the Reformed Roman Rite has its own rubrics, and we're faithful with those. And we answer audibly, with volume, but reverently, amen, 
And the one giving out Holy Communion says audibly, but reverently, uh, the body of Christ before the recipient says amen. But good point, it could be that. Uh, you know, Benedict XVI uh, did say when he issued his motu proprio, which has been abrogated now by Pope Francis, but he did intimate very strongly that the two, uh, the, the two liturgies, the ordinary form and the extraordinary form, should learn from one another. That said, they shouldn't infringe upon each other's rubrics. So, for example, one thing we can learn in the ordinary form that we learn from the extraordinary form is the beauty of sacred silence, some more sacred silence, for example. But it doesn't infringe upon the rubrics. Again, it's a very special mailbag edition of EWTN's Open Line Tuesday. Not taking your phone calls today, you can send us an email. Open line, all one word, at EWTN.com. It's Open Line Tuesday with Father Wade. This is Open Line on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. Today's Open Line is recorded, so no calls, please. If you'd like to send us an email for a future show, the address is openline at EWTN.com. We have another email here from Terry in, uh, well, I'm not sure where Terry's from, but he says, hoping to get this question answered on the show. My parents were both lifelong and devout Catholics. During their last year, they both entered hospice, my dad for congestive heart failure and kidney failure, and my mom for Alzheimer's. In their final days, they both stopped eating and drinking and gradually slipped into a coma. After a few days in this state, they both died peacefully at home and under hospice care. I'm in the process of preparing my own health care advance directive, and it asks whether I want to have... Feeding, uh, tube feeding and hydration if I am in an irreversible and terminal condition. I looked up the teaching on this, and it appears that the Catholic Church says that extraordinary measures, for instance CPR and intubation, do not have to be undertaken, but that ordinary measures, food and drink, even if through a tube, must be done. My questions are, were we wrong in not asking doctors to insert feeding and hydration tubes in their final days? And if I, if I am unconscious and in a terminal, irreversible, and incurable condition, am I obliged to have feeding and hydration tubes inserted to prolong my life, even if, the, even if there is no chance for recovery? And that's from Terry in Minnesota. Yeah. Great, great question. As long as the body is able to receive it, it should be received. At the point when the body can no longer receive it, let's say the liquid intravenous food and nutrients, then it can be uh, ceased, uh, morally speaking, because the body is naturally shutting down anyway. Now, did you do wrong in that you didn't have those inserted for your parents? I don't know, because I don't know if at that juncture your parents' bodies could have received it or not. And, and by receiving it, I mean receiving it and assimilating it, meaning, for example, the liquid nutrients through an intravenous means. As long as the body can receive it, it should receive it. I remember my father dying at home. He was able to receive liquid nutrients to a certain point, and then in the final 72 hours of his life, when, when the stomach started naturally to bloat, and you could see that he was getting larger, we could then, at that means... Uh, cease the intravenous food nutrients because the body was no longer processing those. We were keeping him comfortable, uh, even with morphine, 
and the body was naturally shutting down anyway. And speaking of morphine, remember the church teaches you can't administer morphine to keep the person uh, comfortable in their pain. Even though morphine has the tolerated side effect of hastening death by a bit, let's say they die 72 hours sooner than they would have if they did not take the morphine at the end of life stages. That's tolerated because the body is already naturally shutting down anyway. It's in a non, uh, or in an, it's in an irreversible condition as our uh, writer, our emailer, uh, uses the phrase. So the easy answer to this question is, as long as the body, even though if it's already shutting down, is able to assimilate the, these processes of intravenous nutrients, intravenous food, etc., then yes, they should be given. But at the point where they, the body can no longer process it, these, ex, these means, uh, these, these palliative care, care means, which are considered palliative, while the body can still process them. Uh, they become extraordinary means when the body can no longer process them. Then we can morally and licitly uh, not administer them anymore. Now, there are some palliative means that never cease being palliative. For example, clean bedclothes on, on the person's body, clean bedding for the bed itself, uh, a, a regular moistening of the lips and tongue, or a regular salving, uh, salving of the, the lips and tongue to keep them moist, to prevent chafing. Uh, those things are considered palliative and normative, even to the very point of death. Where we question extraordinary means is, is when the body can or cannot process the particular means we're talking about, like an intravenous nutrition bag that's feeding the nutrition liquid-wise, liquid intravenously. If the body can uh, receive it and assimilate it and process it, yes, give it to them. But when it, when it comes to the point where the body can no longer do that because it's nearing closer to death, then those means can shut off. And, and during that means, at that time, morphine can be administered with, even if it hastens death by a bit, because at that juncture, with the body naturally shutting down anyway, at that juncture, we have one primary concern, to keep the loved one as comfortable as possible. Great question. And by the way, I'd like to add this. Most dioceses now, you'd be hard-pressed, I would think, to find a diocesan website that does not have this, what I'm about to describe. Most diocesan websites, thus most dioceses, have on their websites an advanced healthcare directive, ready to go as a PDF document, that is in full conformity with Catholic moral teaching that you print off from the diocesan website, you fill out, and you give to your primary healthcare physician, and they will abide by it by law. So we don't even have to question these things anymore because most dioceses have the advanced healthcare directive written up in such a way regarding ordinary and extraordinary means and the use of morphine, etc., that is in full conformity with the church's moral teaching on end-of-life issues. And it's a great gift to have that. And so uh, you begin there, and you fill it out, and you give it to your primary care physician. Uh, begin your search for that advanced health care directive uh, with your own diocese. And if by chance your own diocese does not have one at your website, 
turn to your metropolitan diocese because they will have one. Uh, some dioceses may not have one because they rely on the metropolitan one, or they'll have a link at their website that goes to the diocese, to the metropolitan see. So for example, the Fathers of Mercy are located in the Diocese of Owensboro, Kentucky, but our metropolitan see is the Archdiocese of Louisville. So while we have our own healthcare directive at the Diocese of Owensboro, let's say we didn't, the Diocese of Owensboro could provide a link to the healthcare directive located at the uh, Metropolitan C, which is the Archdiocese of Louisville's website. So either way, you can find one that's in conformity with Catholic moral teaching, fill it out, and your healthcare physicians, healthcare providers would abide by it. Great question. Thank you so much. Again, a very special mailbag edition of EWTN's Open Line Tuesday. Let's take a listen to another one of our listener comment line calls. My name is Morellis. I'm from Hamilton, New Jersey. I'm thinking about joining the Army, and I just wanted to know what are the, like, what does the Church teach about the Army or military? Great question, and I want to thank you for your decision to join the Army. The Church would say that it's very heroic, and by all means, uh, to serve your country is a very noble thing. You know, um, we have saints that were in the Army in the Catholic Church. Uh, Father Capon now, uh, from Kansas, uh, his cause has been introduced. Uh, he's now buried in the Wichita Cathedral. Uh, but not only in America, but throughout the centuries, we've had uh, soldier saints. Look at St. Ignatius of Loyola the founder of the Jesuit order, huh? who during his recovery from a leg injury started reading the lives of the saints and converted from his dissolute way of living. Um, blessed Charles de Foucault turned from his dissolute way of living as an army soldier and, and became now, I believe he's venerable now in the church, if not blessed. Um, so there, there's nothing wrong, in fact, quite the opposite. It's actually heroic to want to serve your, your country and to make it a noble means of giving your life uh, to the military and drawing an income from that, and even maybe going career-wise with the military. Maybe that's something that you'll want to discern further as you uh, carry out your years of enlistment, whether two years or four years um, with the Army. Um, you can discern whether or not you want to go full career with the Army, but a beautiful thing. Now, that's a major change in your life, right, to go into the Army. and. Thus, it fulfills one of the times, a major change in our life, when we could and should, your choice, you don't have to, but could and should make a general confession. And so I would like to recommend to you that before you officially enter the army and start your boot camp training, that you make a general confession of all the sins of your past life. So first you would confess the sins from your last confession, uh, mortal and or venial, since your last confession of, say, a month ago. And then when you're done with those, say, Father, I I'm entering the army, and so uh, this is a major change in life for me, and the Church's teaching on a general confession is whenever there's a change of life to make a general confession. So entering the army is a career change for me. It's, it's a major change of life for me. I'd like to make a general confession. And so I'm, I'm mentioning now those past sins already confessed. Notice I use the word mentioning, not confessing, because they've already been confessed. And so now, Father, I'd like to mention those sins from my past categorically uh, that have already been confessed and forgiven for my ongoing healing and strengthening of my moral life. So any past sins of, of 
any type of dissolute way of living that's already been confessed, mortal or venial, you confess those category, all sins against the flesh, uh, all sins against uh, drinking uh, to excess, etc. Um, this is a general confession, and uh, it should only be done when there's a major change of, of life, uh, change in our life. And, and I use the military, entering the military, as one, of, one example of that. Um, also, before one is about to get married, or before one is about to get engaged, that's another great time to make a general confession. Uh, when one is about to enter religious life, to discern their vocation, to consecrate a religious life for the priesthood, just before ordination to the priesthood is another great time to make a general confession, given that most uh, times of preparation for even the diocesan priesthood would be at least five years. So if, if you made a general confession when you first entered the diocesan program, and now it's five years later, after your five years of diocesan training, with the Fathers of Mercy for our community, it's around seven years. It, it could be another time just before ordination that you make that general confession. So I'd like you to, to pray about that and think about that. Again, you don't have to do that, but it's a great way to strengthen your moral life, your spiritual life, whenever there's a major change in our life, to make a general confession. Great, great question about uh, what does the Church teach about going into the military, specifically in your case, the Army. Thank you so much. Be sure to check out Mother Angelica Live Classics tonight at 8 p.m. Eastern Time. Tonight, Mother talks about the presence of God, and she discusses how God's transforming presence makes us more like Christ. That's Mother Angelica Live Classics tonight, 8 p.m. Eastern Time on EWTN Radio and Television. We have an an anonymous email uh, that asks, Can a Catholic be an employee of a pharmaceutical company in any department or role outside of the pharmacy itself that plans to distribute chemical abortion pills? That's a great question. That's a great moral question. Uh, We should do everything in our power to not work for such a company. If we have to, because it's a form of our livelihood, we should make it known to the employer that we do not want to partake directly in that distribution, okay? Um, that's very important as well, and a, a conscientious uh, objector, so to speak, um, and we make that known, and we also give witness uh, as to why we're doing that, because we are pro-life, and we want to um, make it clear to those we work with that we don't want to have a, a, a approximate re- role in that, which leads me to the Church's teaching on proximate versus remote cooperation in the material evil, in this case in the distribution of contraceptives or in abortifacient drugs, which can cause a fertilized egg to chemically uh, abort and not latch onto the uterine wall. So not a, not a potential human person, but a human person with potential if it's given the nine-month gestation period, but the abortifacient contraception that's being used does not give it the chance to latch onto the uterine wall. So the Church's teaching on remote versus proximate cooperation, the moral evil. Benedict XVI said that all Catholics should be well informed about this. So proximate meaning close, remote meaning far away. You want to be as remote as possible from your cooperation with this company in working with this company or for this company in their distribution of the abortifacient contraceptives or the contraceptives themselves. Um, you don't want to have approximate cooperation in the material evil. And uh, we look at the same reality of 
proximate versus remote cooperation in the evil when we look at candidates, when we go to vote at voting time. So uh, semper distingue, uh, Latin for always distinguish what the church teaches. And uh, the universal catechism, universally promulgated by John Paul II, now St. John Paul II, in 1992, I believe we received the English edition a year later in 1993, has a great section on the remote versus proximate cooperation in a material evil. So that would be a great section of the catechism for you to brush up on in wanting to be a good student of the faith. But if you can try to find a totally pro-life company to work for, that would of course be the first, first desired option to work for in healthcare, a totally pro-life organization. And, and don't put it past God to be trying to call you uh, maybe in a, in a muddled way that's not so clear to you, and you got to seek clarity on this in your prayer life. Maybe God's calling you to found such a company, huh? Uh, maybe, or, or, or a, or a pro-life uh, birthright organization that helps unwed mothers and mothers with unplagged pre- pregnancies, including married mothers, uh, as well as unmarried ones. Uh, and, and these, these uh, so-called pro-life crisis pregnancy centers are just wonderful, wonderful organizations in different sized communities, whether it be a metropolitan city or whether it be a, a small rural community. There was one right next door to the Catholic Church that was an ecumenical effort started by different churches, both Catholic and non, including the local Jewish synagogue, along with the Protestant churches, that was happened to be set up in a building literally next door to the Catholic parish. Now, the Catholics had a big part in getting it off the ground, but it's 100% pro-life. So you never know what God's calling you to, and he's, he often gives us his messages through other people. So maybe that's what he's calling you to do. I don't know. But great question. Let's take a listen to another one of our listener comment line calls. Hi, this is James from Superior, Wisconsin. I have a question when it comes to uh, confirmation. I'm going through a confirmation this Saturday, and I was just curious if any sin can make that confirmation invalid. Any help would be great. Thanks. Okay, no sin can make it invalid because uh, the, the sacrament is administered by virtue of having been administered. The, the sacraments work ex opere operato. Uh, Latin for by virtue of, of the work, meaning the sacramental work, by virtue of the work having been worked, ex opere operato, literally by virtue of the work having been worked. We could translate it to by virtue of the sacrament itself having been properly administrated or administered to the recipient. Neither the sinfulness of the uh, minister, in this case the bishop or the priest properly deputed by the bishop to administer the sacrament of confirmation, neither his sinfulness nor the sinfulness of the recipient will block it from being administered. What the sinfulness on the part of the recipient can block is the graces from those sacraments uh, that are being administered. So let's say the 10th grader is in a state of mortal sin, and they're going to be confirmed. Do they re- and they never confess the mortal sin, grave matter done with fullness of knowledge that it was grave matter, and done with deliberate consent of their will anyway that it was grave matter. All three elements are present for a mortal sin. Grave matter done with fullness of knowledge and done with deliberate consent of their will. They, they had all three elements of the mortal sin present, and they carried it out. So they're in a state of mortal sin, technically speaking. Objectively and subjectively speaking, they're in a state of mortal sin. They went to their confirmation mass and received the sacrament of confirmation. Yes, they received it. However, 
they did not receive the graces associated with that sacrament of confirmation until the mortal sin is confessed. Same thing for married couples. You know, we forget uh, you're in a state of mortal sin on your wedding day. You never confess the mortal sin. Maybe some fornication took place before the, the, the marriage uh, via cohabitation and fornication, or maybe not cohabitation, but just fornication. And it wasn't confessed before your wedding day. Objectively speaking, maybe not subjectively, because you didn't have full awareness of the sinfulness of the of the of the fornication, which would be hard pressed to be found today, knowing what the church teaches about fornication, sexual relations between the unmarried. But the fact is, you never confessed it, uh, and and you were aware of it. So it's subjectively and objectively a mortal sin, and you never confessed it before your wedding day. Did you receive the sacrament of matrimony that day with your spouse? Yes, you did but you didn't receive the graces associated with the sacrament of matrimony, and you won't receive them until the mortal sin is confessed. So you have a couple, let's say, that, whose marriage is failing after seven years, but they both married in mortal sin. They've never confessed the mortal sin, and seven years into it, they're wondering why their marriage is failing? It's because they've never had the graces associated with their sacrament of marriage. They've had the sacrament of marriage for seven years, indeed, but they've never had the graces associated with it because of the mortal sin. So go to confession, both you and your spouse, confess that mortal sin and start working on your marriage. You know, that's what we want to do. So, uh, so you'd have to have invalidity for a sacrament by virtue of the minister of the sacrament administering it invalidly. That would invalidate a sacrament. But presuming from your question that it is administered validly, then yes, the person receives it, but they may not receive the graces associated with it if they're in a state of mortal sin, subjectively speaking. Katie would like to know, if you leave the faith, can you come back? You certainly can, and provided uh, it's a simple leaving of the faith where there was a series of years where you never actively practiced the faith, uh, then, then yes, all you got to do is make a good confession and confess your time of lapsed uh, time, your, your lapsed reality on the calendar. Bless me, Father, for I have sinned. My last confession, Father, was 17 years ago. Uh, and of that 17 years, Father, I have pretty much have been away from the church for 15 years. And so this is my first confession of 17 years. And for 15 of those 17 years, I haven't even practiced the faith. Just simply state it up front, simply like that, to the, to the confessor, and he'll guide you. Uh, in making a good, solid, holy, reverent confession. And there's many good examination of consciences out there in written form. One can be found at my community's website, fathersofmercy.com, on the search bar simply title uh, uh, Examination of Conscience, and it's ready to print off on your home printer, and it's, it's got a great, great examination of conscience with a series of questions that do what? They comb through the Ten Commandments to help you make a, a good, solid, reverent confession. And one of the questions is, have I left the church for any amount of time? And that's what you're confessing up front to the confessor, is that this is your first confession in so many years, precisely because in so many years you haven't even practiced the faith, and, and the priest will guide you with that examination of conscience to make a good, holy confession. So in most cases, as you describe in your question, in most cases, you know, is it, is it, you ask simply, is it possible to return to the church after a time of having lapsed from it? Yes, and in most cases, it's simply a good confession you have to make. That's all. Now, if you're in an invalid marriage that you've acquired civilly during this time of lapse, then yes, we need to ask, okay, 
Uh, are you working to get the marriage remedied as sacramental in the church? Are you two living as though brother and sister? Is it still a sexually active marriage? Then those questions will help us discern whether or not you can receive confession or not. But if you're living as though brother and sister with no relations, and you're working on getting the marriage in the church sacramentally, then yes, you can receive confession and return actively to both Eucharist and confession, both confession and Eucharist, and that will help uh, uh, sustain you during this time of, of getting the, the marriage sacramentalized in the church. Great question. And finally today, Philip asks, regarding the Immaculate Conception, I can't understand how Mary could be free from original and personal sin. Can you explain? Yeah, great question. Well, she was still had to be saved, so she was saved by the merits of the cross before the cross of her son took place, where we are saved by the cross after the cross took place. So Mary's Immaculate Conception in her mother's womb, St. Anne's womb, which prepared her to be the mother of God, was an anticipated fruit, quote, end quote, her Immaculate Conception is an anticipated fruit of the merits won by her Son from the cross for all of humankind. That's the easiest answer to your question. How can it be? How can the Immaculate Conception be? Because Mary benefited from the cross by way of her Immaculate Conception as an anticipatory fruit of the merits that would be won for all humanity from the cross after it took place. Remember, when he rose from the dead, he descended to the dead and released from the dead those who died um, in a state of grace, but not yet perfectly purified, and, and or perfectly purified, but couldn't enter heaven yet because the Paschal mystery hadn't taken place yet, the passion, death, resurrection of our, of our Lord, and also his ascension. So he descended into hell or to the dead, not the not the hell of the damned, but the the, the hell of the 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 Hades of of the not the Hades, excuse me, that would be the the hell of the damned. He descended to the dead and and released from that state those who could now enter heaven because they died in a state of grace, but because the Paschal mystery hadn't happened yet, they could not enter heaven. But his Paschal mystery opened the gates of heaven, so even they received the benefits of the cross after the cross took place. But Mary, as the mother of God, singularly, meaning the only person, singularly was, was saved as an anticipated fruit of the cross that would take place, and that was by way of her conception in St. Anne's womb. Great question. Father, would you leave us with a blessing? I certainly will, Jack. May the blessing of Almighty God, the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit descend upon all of our Open Line Tuesday listeners and remain with each and every one of you this day and always. St. Joseph, terror of demons. Pray for us on behalf of our host, Father Wade Menezes, our producer, Michael McCall. I'm Jack Williams. Thanks so much for tuning in to this very special mailbag edition of EWTN's Open Line Tuesday. If you want to be part of a future mailbag, simply send us an email. That email address again is openline at EWTN.com. That's openline, all one word, at EWTN.com. Until we get together next time, God bless.